Presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined as always by Bruce Feldman. It is a huge week coming up on the field in college football. Number one, LSU against number two, Alabama. Eight, no Penn State, eight, no Minnesota. But we start today, Bruce, because the coaching carousel is well underway now. Yes. So Florida State made a big move. They, uh, Fired Willie Taggart after less than two seasons on the job. His buyout is somewhere of $18 million. That doesn't even include his staff. That is a huge chunk of change. Um, so I have a column up on The Athletic about how I think their search will shape up. A couple of things surprised me, Stu, when I started making a lot of calls on Sunday was how much, uh, I don't want to say apathy, but there were guys that I thought would be legit candidates for this job who want no part of this job and some of it is because hey this school just fired a guy within two years that's one that's kind of a jolt the other part of it is what kind of uh, leadership situation do you have it's a really weird leadership dynamic that Florida State has right now you don't know about how stable the long term the president and the AD are the boosters are very involved and there's just a structure that gives people a lot of pause on that. And so I think when you add those things in, it's going to be very interesting. Um, to me, some of the most viable options they have right now and factoring in who the guys are, what their connections to Florida and the state of Florida and recruiting there, as well as what their buyouts are. Because if your buyout, if you're a coach and your buyout is north of five or six million dollars, I don't think that's that's a realistic option for them. So here's where I would see it going. I think Mark Stoops, who coached there under Jimbo Fisher, beat Miami and Florida State a bunch of times. He knows the state very well. He's done a really nice job at Kentucky. I think he is a real candidate. Uh, I think Mike Norvell from Memphis, who had a really good weekend beating previously undefeated SMU, I think he is a candidate there, and I think he would look if Arkansas pulls the plug uh, um, this year on their coach after less than two years. Then I think this is a guy in Norvell who is who went to college in Arkansas. I could see him being a candidate there. PJ Fleck, I'm not sure how interested he would be in this job. He spent a year on the Buck staff. I, you know, he's recruited there a little bit. I don't know if he's if he's that guy. Um, Tom Allen, who spent a lot of time in Florida, was a former high school coach in in the state of Florida, as well as has done a nice job at Indiana, had a kind of a breakout season there. I could see him possibly as an option. And then to me, the wild card guy is Mike Leach. Mike Leach, uh, you know, he agreed to be the coach at Tennessee a couple of years ago, and then that thing blew up. I, I think he would definitely be interested in that job. I think he would probably bring a lot of people together on the Florida State side of things. And it would certainly be interesting to see what he could do with the talent that's already at Florida State, but that the talent you can get at Florida State. So tell me what you think of that. 
I'll tell you what I think about that list that you just gave me. Yawn. Who do you want, Stu? I mean, realistically, you, you, you're not going to get... You're not getting Urban Meyer to take that job. You're not getting Dabo Sweeney to take that job. I don't think you're getting James Franklin to take that job. You might get James Franklin to take the USC job. I don't think he's leaving Penn State in that situation to go there. Who do you think is taking that job? Who would take that job? Well, maybe maybe the reason the list is so uninspiring to me is because of what you said before, that some guys who you would think would be interested aren't interested. I guess my question to that would be, I mean, yeah, it's a it's it's a mess there. Nobody could dispute that. I think the whole Willie Taggart era may have been doomed from the start. He obviously uh, didn't perform well. There's there's no way around that. But he also inherited a big mess to some extent, at least. I, I mean, the problem with it there is you can only really blame the Jimbo Fisher stuff when you're first starting out. At some point, people expect to see progress, and they weren't making any. Um, the administrative stuff's a concern. The booster stuff's a concern. But at the end of the day, you know, I've talked about it before. I think there's a, a very small group of programs, maybe 12 or 13 programs, that are capable of winning a national championship in today's sport. And Florida State's one of them. And they did it not that long ago. This is not a, well, Nebraska's 20-something years removed. Can they ever do it again? Florida State did it six years ago. Uh, Florida State was in a New Year's Six Bowl three years ago. So... The high-profile guys that aren't interested, uh, unless they're already at one of those 13 or so schools, you know, what are they waiting to open up instead? Because to me, I'm not saying it's Ohio State where everything is in place for you to come in and win a national championship right away, but it's Florida State. It's three time, three national championships since the 90s. Well, maybe a coach who's not um, at one of those. State of Florida, maybe obviously. Maybe a coach who's not at one of those 13 schools and you and – like I'm curious who you think those guys are and how they fit there. You know, Kyle Whittingham is Which a terrific guys? coach. Kyle Whittingham's not going to Tallahassee, Florida at this stage of his career. Maybe that's the issue. There's some, some, some Tallahassee, not the most attractive. No, let's not run down go, Tallahassee. Kind of give, just give me some give me some guys here you think. I don't have any. I mean when when this job opened up on uh Sunday I, I couldn't think of any lot. There's not not a home run, no brainer guy uh, that that would make sense as the next Florida State coach. So of the ones you said, who intrigues you the most? Of the ones you said, I think, I mean, Mike Norvell is going to get a major job here pretty soon, and obviously, you don't want to make those kind of decisions based on one game. I hope nobody is saying, "Oh, I ought to take a look at that guy because they beat SMU on national TV the other night." But if you look at his whole tenure there and the players that they've produced they've been in the mix every year uh in that conference they just haven't had that ucf type season yet so he's gonna get a major job i would think arkansas seems to make more sense given his background but um i think you would consider that to be a good hire for florida state i think pj fleck it's hard to say uh he's just such a unique character right how would that play at Florida State? I think P.J. Fleck would love to be in the mix for USC. I would be surprised if USC would go in that right. direction. Um, tell me what you think about Mike Leach. He coached at Valdosta State. It's an hour and a half away. We know he loves the state of Florida. He loves the state of Florida. 
Um, I think that that's going to be a hard sell at this moment. I think coming off last year and Gardner Minshew and 11 wins um, would have been the time to make that move. They're not very good this year. Uh, we're talking about a program that strives to win national championships. He has won at Washington State and at Texas Tech, places that are hard to win, but he's never been in that on that level. Um, no, I, I, mean, I don't see that one at all. Four, Stu. It's not like he's Owen. It's not like he's Owen eight. He just won eleven games. They've never had an eleven win season in school history. Like, how do you think Florida State I mean, fans who want a national championship? We're not. We're talking. By the way, they're four and four. They play. They play Cal, Stanford, and Oregon State. If they win three of their last four. They're seven and five, which is which is fine. I'm not sure but that that's... again, you're talking about a pro. You're talking about a program like let's say Michael Leach went to Florida State and they got a lot better next year and they went nine and three, and then the next year they went nine and three again. They're going to want to fire him. So I, I just don't think that act plays there in terms of like it's really it's really fun that his weekly press conferences right uh, become viral. Like what off off the football topic is somebody going to ask that he's going to go on a 10-minute rant about, and it's going to go viral. But, like, Florida State takes football very seriously. They want to win. They want to win big. They don't – I don't think they're going to have much patience for the kind of soap uh, – I don't think they're going to have much patience for, like, the reality show aspect of Mike Leach. So, uh, no, I don't see that one at all. Fair enough. I asked your opinion. You gave it to me. Uh, I did. It was kind of a strong one. I, it was. I you basically and called him a And that's not to say I don't see Mike Leach. Act. Well, that's not to say I wouldn't have seen Mike Leach. I still would have loved to have seen Tennessee hire Mike Leach. But Tennessee's in a little different position where they've been so bad for so long now. They they just need a, a shot of relevance. Uh, the last three years have been bad for Florida State. But, you know, from 20, like 2011 and 12, or 12 up until the last few years they were let's not forget two years ago opening game of the season alabama florida state in atlanta they come in as the number three team in the country this has been a really mysterious and puzzling um and and rapid descent but with the right coach in place we know at florida state the ceiling is very very high mark stoops do anything for you yeah mark stoops does um i think uh given his experience there and at Miami, uh, that that actually would make a lot of sense. Um, that's another one where will will the fans be fired up about a guy who might end up going six and six this year after having you know basically one good season at Kentucky? That that might be a little bit of a tough sell, but you know what? Like you said earlier, I don't know that there's a guy they're going to hire that's going to wow the fan base when his name gets announced. You're just going to have to. I'm not sure Willie Taggart wowed the fan base when he was hired. So you're just going to have to go out there and earn it. Okay. So another school that we think will be looking in the coaching search market is USC. You spent a couple of days in my hometown. What did you take away from that? More like uh, 21 hours. Okay. Well, I don't want to hear about the airport or any of that stuff. I just want to hear about what you think about USC. You don't want to hear about the airport? Have no, you been I don't to the? Want to hear about, to, I have. Have you been to LAX since they installed yes, this new do. Uber Let's, system? Nobody wants to hear about this. Trust me. Okay. Okay. Um, so, interesting comparison between being there for the Notre Dame game at the end of last season when 
the vitriol toward Clay Helton was so strong that anytime he his he came up on the video, like they do a live interview with him, um, I think about a half hour before kickoff, his face would come up, the whole stadium would boo. Now, this was the end of a season where they missed a bowl game. Uh, everybody thought he was going to get fired the next morning. Remember how surprising it was when, when Swan comes out and says he's staying? I think the vibe is... A- a lot different now they got their butts kicked by Oregon obviously fans weren't happy about that but I think the the vibe there was more of just checked out apathy a lot of empty seats um, kind of a subdued tailgate scene uh, I don't think they I, I think they're just kind of waiting for for the for play out the string like this was already considered kind of a lame duck season for Clay Helton and that's despite the fact they went into that game still in control of the of their division chance to go to the Pac-12 championship game but now that that's not the case anymore and they got embarrassed by Oregon everybody knows what's coming I think what's interesting is and of course on Friday you reported uh, that that they might have a new AD here pretty soon that Mike Bone at Cincinnati was close to accepting the deal to become the next athletic director as of this recording on Monday that still has not uh, been officially announced. Um, yeah, I mean, I think with the interesting development here is that for months, right, everybody's just been like, well, Urban Meyer will be at USC. And I think that was a combination of people just assume he's not going to stay on TV. He's going to get back into coaching. Fox, he's at, going to Fox every week. He's in LA already. Um, he's going to go be the next USC coach. What I don't think Hardly anybody was like, would you is would USC actually want to hire Urban Meyer? Uh, that's just assumed. That's a given. As soon as the bone uh, reports came out on Friday, uh, there were anonymous quotes to the effect of they're going to now they're going to do the full court press. But I think um, both of us are hearing otherwise. It seems like the people that were kind of pushing that were just glossing over. Oh, by the way. Remember last year when he almost got fired and ended up still getting suspended over the Zach Smith stuff? Uh, Remember when all those players got arrested at Florida? Is there any possibility that maybe the new president of USC might not be all that comfortable with the idea of hiring Urban Meyer? Yeah, I mean, look, I think this is, to me, I don't think it's a slam dunk. I mean, I think I've said this before on this podcast, and I've said it before uh, on some radio interviews. By all accounts, Urban Meyer is very, very fired up about doing TV and seems to be very, very energized by it. Now, the hard part is TV, no matter how excited you can be about TV, it doesn't replace the competitive itch you get from coaching, even if you can try to be competitive about how the broadcasts go. I think the other part of this that people forget also when it comes to Urban Meyer's side of things is he had serious health issues. I mean, we did a couple of games, one game especially it comes to mind, where he looked in agony. And I remember there was another game I think you and I talked about where it was the Maryland game where he looked really bad. I mean, I don't think those issues for him go away if he goes back to tries to go back to the sideline again in the grind of coaching. So, I mean, I think for the people who thought it was just, it was a slam dunk that, USC is going to make this 
make this big splashy hire, and this is an obvious one. He's won national titles. I think there's a lot of factors that that complicate that idea. Yeah, I think uh, amongst the general public outside of Ohio State, there's so much um, Urban's reputation as such that, I mean, you know, this is even even before Ohio State going back to Florida. Oh, he was faking it. He he was uh, he, he was just scared of Nick Saban, so he he faked a health condition. And then I'm sure there are a lot of people that think the stuff about last year wasn't real. Well, it is. <laughs> he has a he has a brain cyst. It's pretty serious. And and unlike the Florida thing that was obviously, um, you know, happened in private, uh, everybody who tuned into the game could see what was going on and how much anguish he was in. And I agree, like. Maybe he's doing better right now. Maybe he's feeling good. His health is, is good. But that that's different. Doing what he's doing right now is a lot different than being on the sideline on fourth and one with the game on the line and just the amount of pressure he puts on himself as a coach. That's going to be the same if you're coaching USC or any other uh, major program. Now, he has not addressed that as far as I know. I mean, this would be a whole different story if at some point he had come out and said, health condition doesn't allow it he has never said that he has never shot down the possibility of returning and until or unless he does um, speculation like this is going to be out there anytime a job opens up but the other side of it is like we talked about there's baggage there and um, usc has a new president they're going to have a new athletic director there's been a lot of um, instances there recently where they were already in the news for the wrong reasons, whether it was at the university level or in athletics. So there's a there's a bit of a understandable concern there with some of the higher ups. Now, anytime there's a coaching search, and we saw this with Tennessee, um, various factions end up trying to have their own say in it. And I'm sure there are a lot of high up people there that want them to uh, back up the Brinks truck and do anything possible to get Urban Meyer. So. It'll be interesting to see what happens. I think the difference with them and with Florida State is if they're not going after Urban Meyer, I still think they're going to be able to get a very attractive coaching candidate with James Franklin being at the top of the list. You're not so sure about that with Florida State. Uh, one thing I would say, and you brought up Tennessee, and I think this is a, at least a relevant analogy. Tennessee, a few years ago, their fan base and some of their media got so tied into John Gruden and this this John Gruden lust for him to come back. Never mind that John Gruden, who knew if he could be an even good college coach, but he had some ties to the state of Tennessee. But then all of a sudden, all these, you know, it was John, Groomer, John Gruden was like Elvis to them and searching for him and everything. And what I think didn't help them in the long run was because this thing dragged on the way it did, uh, I think it made whoever they ended up getting as the head coach. And I remember telling her, I have a good friend who's a diehard Tennessee fan and telling her, hey, if they don't, what's going what's gonna to be if you don't get John Gruden? And then you, you end up hiring a perfectly qualified coach who might be probably better served to be a college coach than John Gruden. You don't know. But there's going to be so, so much air out of the balloon because it's not John Gruden. And I, I, so I guess what I'm getting at is I think – if it's in fact Urban Meyer's not at all in the equation for USC, I think the sooner USC makes sure that's known, and again, look, there's no coaching vacancy right now to even Clay Helton still got the job, so I'm not saying 
that uh, that the president needs to say Urban Meyer is not a candidate or any of that or however that gets handled. But the sooner that gets diffused, if that's certainly not the case, I think the better off USC is going to be. Agree 100%. So many times in these coaching searches, it's about who, who controls the message. And somebody definitely wanted it out there on Friday that they were going to do everything it takes to get him. My guess is whoever put it out there on Friday that, oh, they're going to do whatever it takes to get him, wants that message out there in case the president, Carol Folt, doesn't pursue him or doesn't do everything it takes to get him, then then everybody will blame it on her. Um, if, if in fact, and we don't know for sure, if in fact she's against it or has serious reservations about it, it would probably behoove her or, or somebody at the school to get that out there. So we are starting to see that written more. Pete Thamel, our friend at Yahoo!, very connected, um, made a very good point that if they were hell-bent on getting Urban Meyer, they probably could have hired a different AD. They could have hired somebody who actually has ties to him, who has worked with him in the past, who he trusts. They did not do that. Bill Plasky, the LA Times, obviously, you know him. He's on Around the Horn. He has a huge, huge um, uh, voice, obviously, in LA, and has written a couple things about this in the last week, both indicating... Uh, sorry, USC fans, not going to happen. So, But as you know, coaching changes change by the day, change by the week. They haven't actually even officially started a coaching change, a coaching search. Who knows how it will play out. Um, by the way, or, you know, we should pro- I should probably mention that game that Oregon fell behind early and then just completely steamrolled USC from there. Uh, combined with the game you were at, where Utah went on the road and got a big win at Washington. This was a really good day for the Pac-12. Obviously, the conference doesn't necessarily root for one team over the other, but given the um, perception of that conference in the last couple years and that they haven't necessarily had a legit playoff contender late into the season, with both of those teams winning those games and then you look at their schedule the rest of the way, you can start to see the possibility of 11-1 11-1 and one Oregon against 11-1 and one Utah in the Pac-12 championship game with a playoff berth possibly on the line. That would be that would be, <laughs> that'd be a much more um, compelling matchup than the one I went to last year between two 9-3 teams where the final score was 10-3. to three. Yeah, now you may not get more offense in that game, but I think you would get two teams that would have at least more on the line from a possible playoff. You saw Utah up close. I feel like this is a team that, despite its high ranking, um, a lot of people outside the Pac-12 still don't know a lot about, or maybe they're still just very skeptical of, because let's face it, Kyle Whittingham has won a lot of games there uh, since they joined the Pac-12, but they've never finished the finished the deal. They've had some, some years where they were very highly ranked and then lost like three of their last four. Last year... Unfortunately, they were on the right path, and then Tyler Huntley and Zach Moss got hurt, and that was the end of that. Uh, give us your assessment, seeing them up close. Uh, I start their, their defensive line. We talked about this even before the season. Kyle Whittingham thought it was the best D-line he's ever had there, and it more than lives up to the hype. Uh, Lecky Fotu was a guy who came in there as a 260-pound former rugby player who's now 335. I don't think he's quite Vita Vea. But he, if you're looking for a comparison, that's probably the one. Uh, Bradley and I gets after people from from the edge. They have a 
very good secondary. But the thing to me that has made them really different this year is just how well Tyler Huntley is playing. And Tyler Huntley is is dealing with a meniscus issue in his knee. He is playing really well. Uh, I mean, he, he looks gimpy in warm-ups, and yet he can run a little bit in games. And I think what they've done, credit to Andy Ludwig, who's been the new offensive coordinator. He came back. They do, they have a really interesting scheme so they can keep people off balance and on their heels with the, with the run game and some of what they do with a lot of the window dressing that goes with it. But where I think Huntley is really a lot better than he's given credit for is they take some shots. And this guy, I went back and kind of crunched the numbers after the game. He leads the country in in completion percentage on the road, on third downs, and also in fourth quarters and in second halves of games. That's pretty remarkable to lead in one of those stats, much less all of them, because that's clutch football. And we saw him hit a couple of big third and long throws that really were kind of backbreakers against Washington, who, by the way, Washington, they are the ones who have the really hyped quarterback in Jacob Eason, who is the former five-star, who's the guy who a lot of people are looking at as a future NFL quarterback. And he got outplayed last weekend by Tyler Huntley, and it was impressive. And certainly they, they have a terrific running back in Zach Moss. Those guys are old high school teammates from Hallandale, Florida. People, A lot of people know the story, but they really have set the tone for that team. And Kyle Whittingham told us the night before the game, he said, you know, this is the most fun I've had coaching. He loves this team, and I think it's reflected, and they battled back, and and Washington's a tough team to beat there. And the way they, they really took it to the Huskies, and the Huskies made a lot more mistakes. And Whittingham's message to the team was, look, we're going to have to take it if you guys really want it. So how bad do you want it? And they were the team that clearly wanted it a lot more than Washington did. And if, if it is them against the Oregon, seen both of these teams now a couple of times, I think that'll be a great game. So I'm going to put you on the spot here because this is going to come up. I think starting Tuesday night when the playoff rankings come out and people start talking about this stuff. If, and it's a big if, I'll give you both. Utah or Oregon gets in the playoff. And let's say they're playing Alabama or Clemson or Ohio State uh, or LSU. What's Give me the percentage chance the Pac-12 team would actually win that game. Because I think people feel like you know, it's the, it's the old best versus most deserving. I think a 12 yeah, and 1 12 champ would be very deserving. Are they actually as good as those teams? If Tyler Huntley's knee can get better, I would say both of them are between 20 and 25% chance. Oregon's got the better offensive line between the two. And I think I have more confidence right now a little bit in, in Utah. The issue is when your quarterback is pretty gimpy, and he is right now, I don't know. Does he get healthy after a month away? I don't know. Um, to me, that's that's a, that's a legit variable. But I think both of them, because they're physical on both lines. Now, Utah's offensive line is not as good as Oregon. I don't even think it's close. But whoever comes out of there is going – whoever emerges from there, I think is a, will be a legit playoff team. And I think they can win a game there because – both of those guys, both of those groups have, have enough personnel in the secondary to, I think, to hang with, with some teams. Because you mentioned Clemson, LSU, Alabama. 
they all have really dynamic, you know, passing games and receiving cores. And Utah has a really good D line, and I think they have enough in the secondary where I think they can they can match up. Now they didn't against USC, but I think they've gotten a lot better since then in the in the secondary. So that's my answer. I mean, I think they have a 20-25% chance of winning a game against one of those teams. Uh that's lower than I thought you were going to say. Uh that that doesn't help their case if it gets down to it and and we're talking about Stu, I think if you had asked me or asked a lot of people back in September, I would have said it would have been it would have been below 15%. Well, here's the problem, right? Let's say it gets to selection Sunday. Uh let's just say it's Utah. 12 and 1, Pac-12 champion Utah is sitting there and you're saying they should be in the playoff. They should be in the playoff. And okay, well, what chance do you give them in their semifinal game? 20-25%. Okay, now the other choice is the loser of this week's LSU-Alabama game. What percentage chance do you give them against Ohio State, against the rest of the field? It's going to be a lot higher than 20-25%. It is going to be a lot higher. But if you give me anybody else, I mean, who else are we talking about? If you ask me to put Penn State in the mix, if you ask, look, if, I, if you ask me Minnesota, I'm putting in Minnesota maybe in single digits. Right, right, right. I'm putting, I'm putting Penn State. Uh, I'm putting Penn State maybe at 25, 30%. It's, it's just interesting because it gets to the whole best versus most deserving thing. Jim Delaney clearly thinks it should be more deserving. You win your conference. That means you should be in over somebody who Look, I wouldn't put I wouldn't put Oklahoma above 30% at this point either. Well, I think there's a – I agree. I don't think Oklahoma is in any better shape than Oregon or Utah. I just think that as we get into – the possibility of two SEC teams, and by the way, there's a third team to consider that we'll talk about in a second. Um, the let me ask you this: so let me point this one thing out before you know we're having this conversation. The one thing is, Alabama is a big unknown right now because we haven't seen them play anybody yet. If they go play LSU and LSU beats them, you know, thirty-one seventeen. I may think differently about Alabama. I know their receivers are really good, and I know Tua is really gifted. I know they have some good personnel individually on defense, but we haven't really seen their defense play anybody yet, have we? We haven't seen them play anybody, period. I mean, they have one of the worst schedule strengths in the country right now. That's about to change, obviously. Uh, Or I should say worst schedule strengths among the playoff contenders. Uh, That's about to change. Obviously, I think it becomes much. I think if you're Oregon and Utah or Oklahoma or Baylor or Penn State, anybody that, that's that's eyeing this thing, you should very much be rooting for LSU to win this football game, preferably decisively, because the much tougher situation is going to be if it's LSU that's 11-1 and one with a pretty good resume. I mean, for Oregon and Utah, you know, I do think it would be fantastic for that conference and for their playoff hopes if that last game of the season is 11-1 versus 11-1. A lot of people will be watching. It's a signature victory. The problem is that might be their only top 25 win of the whole season because the way the Pac-12 is shaking out right now, everybody else has at least three and in most cases four losses. So whereas LSU is is going to have, I would think, several top 25 wins, uh, obviously it would help them if Texas could get their um, act in order. So uh, Penn State will have several, even if they lose to Ohio State. Should be interesting, and certainly we'll get more into the LSU-Alabama game later this week. 
Um, uh, what was I going to say? Um, Georgia, Florida. That's why I said there's a third SEC team we have to consider here in this whole conversation because Georgia, my preseason national champion, it should be noted, who I fled from after the South Carolina and Kentucky games, they go and get the win against Florida. And I think uh, watching that game, first of all, you, you really appreciate, not that we didn't already know Georgia's very good on defense, but watching it, watching them play against a pretty good team, you see uh, – for all the hype about LSU and Alabama, that's mostly about LSU and Alabama's offenses. Georgia has a big-time defense. And then Jake Fromm, who had two of his worst games of his career, probably his or were his two worst games of his career, the last two games, had a good game, aided in part, by the way, of Lawrence Cager, the Miami transfer. Who, who would have guessed before the season he would be so important to Georgia? He misses those uh, or most of those two games when suddenly Jake Fromm couldn't find anybody open, he comes back and has over 100 yards. Um, change your opinion of Georgia at all? Not really. I thought they were the more talented team. That was kind of what I expected. Um, I still think they're they're very good. I just don't know. I don't know what percentage I would put on them compared to the the, the Clemson... LSU, Alabama, Ohio State group. I, right now, I would not put them much above 30%, I don't think. You're saying that same 30% against the rest of the playoff field? Yeah, I just don't. I, I'm not as sold on them as I am on that other group at this point. And again, if Alabama's the one I need to see more from. But I, I feel like LSU has a dynamic offense. I feel like Ohio State has a dynamic offense. I certainly feel like Clemson and, and Alabama have that. I don't necessarily feel that from Georgia. I think Georgia's defense is talented, but again, I'm not sure that they're as balanced. So that's the part where I'm a little, um, and I feel like I need to see Kirby Smart win a, win some big games. Well, I'll give Georgia props in that I did pick against them. I was really probably maybe react, overreacted to the performance the first the two games before that. They looked more like a team I would expect them to look like. They still don't look like national championship team, though, and they haven't all season. Um, this was a pretty similar formula to how they beat Notre Dame, um, and I agree. I think Alabama and LSU are so explosive that that's not a, it's not realistic. You're going to shut them down. DeAndre Swift runs for... 26 times for 95 yards or something like that, and Jake Fromm makes a couple plays and you win. Uh, the team that beats Alabama and or LSU in a in a SEC championship or in a playoff game is going to have to probably be able to keep up in a shootout. I just think that's the reality of it. I think it's fascinating that the, and I wrote all about this in Forward Pass, uh, the over-under that's Vegas set uh, initially for the game this week between the top two teams in the country and the AP poll is 65. That's not an, all that unusual for a college football game these days, but it's definitely on the high end. And it's, um, I looked it up. Well, first of all, let's talk about the fact that in 2011, they played twice and scored a combined 36 points. One of those games even went to overtime. Now we're talking 65. And only once in the 84-year history of the LSU-Alabama series has have the teams combined for at least 65 points, and that was in Saban's first year in 2007. Still just remarkable to me how much has changed both in college football as a whole 
but with these two programs in particular in the eight years since that nine to six game. Yeah, it certainly has. I mean, look, it's changed a lot just in the last six months, three months. So yeah, so, for LSU, as you yes. Said, as you said, we'll get into this uh, a little more later in the week on the Audible Extra. Well, it's an eventful week to say the least. So the first playoff rankings come out Tuesday night. Um, what are you most interested to find out? You know, the stuff that I'm interested about, I don't think is is, is all that relevant because you're going to have LSU and Alabama. Like, I'm curious to see what they think of Alabama and where they're ranked. But at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter because if LSU if LSU beats them, then I want to see how far they fall. If they if Alabama wins that game, I my my guess is Alabama is going to be number one. So that's really the thing I'm most curious about, like where they stick. Uh, Baylor, where they stick Oklahoma versus the two Pac-12 top teams. I mean, I think a lot of that's still going to sort itself out, but I'm just curious at least of what they think of Alabama. That's the number one question for me. Um, I'm, I'm feel reasonably confident that it's not going to be one, two, which will make for an interesting weekend because most media outlets at this point use the AP rankings until the playoff rankings come out. So can you still call it a one versus two game if the playoff committee says Alabama, it's two versus three or one versus three, whatever the case may be. I'm pretty sure Ohio State is going to be in the top two. Um, I guess what I would say is, yeah, you know, it, it matters more to see how much they drop, but it'll be pretty telling if there's a discrepancy to start with. Um, if Alabama is third or lower to start with, it tells you that, yeah, the committee doesn't think they've played a great schedule. And that might make it harder for them to um, justify them as a as a playoff team if they don't win this game because the only notable win they'll end up with all season is Auburn, and Auburn could be eight and four um, at that point. I'm also smaller story, but uh, this is a turning. This is shaping up to be quite the race for the Group of Five New Year's Six berth. There are six Group of Five teams ranked in the latest AP poll. Four from the American, plus Boise State and San Diego State from the Mountain West. Memphis, obviously the hot team right now coming off the win over SMU. But Cincinnati is the highest ranked of the group. Um, Boise State's not that far behind. One thing I've noticed, the committee, two things I've noticed. A, the committee is usually lower on the group of five teams than the voters are because of strength of schedule. Uh, and they are not afraid, especially in those early rankings, it's not necessarily a given that they will line up the way you see them in the AP poll, especially because I don't think they, um, like there will be teams out of that six that won't be ranked at all. Which ones? I'm not sure. I don't know. But it's interesting because when you think about it, Cincinnati beat UCLA, uh, San Diego State beat UCLA, Boise State beat Florida State, Memphis beat Ole Miss, uh, SMU beat TCU. They all have a Power 5 win, but they're all against Power 5 teams that weren't that have turned out to be not very good. So I wonder if that will even help them all that much. Hmm. All right, Stu, do you want to get to the mailbag? I do. As always, you can send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. You're going to sense a recurring theme with a couple of these questions, Bruce. As Willie Taggart uh, learned the hard way, 
Um, we have higher expectations these days for second-year coaches than we used to for various reasons. So over the weekend, Nebraska loses again, this time to a 2-6 and six at that point Purdue team that by the end of the game was down to its third-string quarterback, Dan Ridenauer. Hey, guys, great job with the podcast and the athletic CFB coverage at large. Thank you. My question relates to another mea culpa perhaps owed on your behalf regarding specifically the predictions of imminent Big Ten titles and playoff appearances for Scott Frost and the Huskers. If I remember correctly, Bruce estimated within three to four years they'd be in the playoff. My question is as follows. To what do you attribute the stunning lack of development of this program from year one to year two? I thought they would find it much harder to win in the Big Ten recruiting in Lincoln than winning in the AAC with the stock covered from George O'Leary and Orlando in general, but even I didn't anticipate them getting arguably worse from year one to year two. Sagarin has them at number 60 right now. They finished 54 last year. That's a fair question. Look, I, I'm not going to write off something from two years from, two years from now or even next year. I think what we're seeing is a lot more growing pains than certainly I expected. Um, I don't know. I think it's. I, I think this is not one thing. I think from just watching them, I mean, they've had issues on both sides of the ball. They've had issues pretty much everywhere you look. And it's been really disappointing for anybody who, who was around there and, and felt all the, the energy and the enthusiasm and the, con- and the confidence more than anything else. And it's just been a dud, to be honest. I mean, the lose, to get, get blown off the field by Minnesota like they did a few weeks ago, then to lose to a, a Purdue team that really was undermanned and to lose there, just a lot of head scratchers. I mean, I don't know if they're... I, I mean, they're not worse than they were last year, I don't think. They just aren't – they don't feel like they're considerably better at all. I mean, I, I, talked, to our, I talked to our friend Max Olson the other day, who's from Nebraska and is, is based there, and I said it feels like the last bit of good football was the bit of good football that our crew did when they were up at halftime handily at Colorado. From halftime on, it just feels like it's been all downhill for them since. Well, the difference from last year to this year with Nebraska was they did get better over the last half of the season last year after starting, what was it, 0-6, and they ended up at 4-8. and This team's getting worse. I mean, they lose by two touchdowns to Indiana. They have no business losing to Purdue. They're probably going to miss a bowl game at this point unless they get their act together. Um, I, I, it seems to me that expectations were, were probably higher than they should have been coming into the season, both from the outside and from Scott Frost himself and some of the things he said. And when things started to, to go wrong, they just keep compounding themselves. I don't know if that, I mean, it, that team seems really frustrated with themselves, with the whole situation, and um, uh, and it shows. Now, I'm with you. I'm not going to say after two seasons that Scott Frost is a terrible hire and they're never going to be good. I'm old enough to remember um, four or five games ago when Chip Kelly uh, was... You know, people uh, openly add Dan Wetzel on the Yahoo podcast asking whether he even comes to work anymore. Now they're four and two in the Pac-12 and technically alive for the conference championship. You know, we we all overreact in the moment. Uh, I think we also have probably been there have been a lot of coaches who have had wild success in their second season, including national championships. And now there's everybody's measuring them that way. And uh, some of these guys in their second year 
it's just a bigger rebuilding job than you thought it would be. The problem is when it gets worse, that's harder for fans to accept. But uh, I will acknowledge that they should be a lot better than they are. I'm, I didn't think they were going to win the Big Ten West, like a lot of people said, but they should be a lot better than they are. This has been um, a really inexplicable performance from Scott Frost's team in this second season. Agreed. Um, next question is from Tyler Barishaw. You guys are probably the biggest Chris Peterson fans in the media. Where would you rank in your coaching rankings now? I think two years ago you both had him at number three. Good coaches are supposed to win when a better team comes to their house, and he's blown those games twice at home and no-show two other times. Explain yourself, Stu. Well, first of all, again, Washington was in the Rose Bowl last season. I don't think that the program is falling apart, but they're certainly having a bad year. Uh, so let me, I'm just looking this up here. As I recall, when I went to do the best coaches list, you realized, oh, with no Meyer, um, there's a bit of a void here now after Saban and Dabo Swinney. Who is supposed to be number three? And I ended up going with Chris Peterson because his overall track record going back to Boise State's pretty, pretty good. As of this moment, do I still rank him number three in the country? I think it would be a little harder to justify that, but I'm going to just play a little game with you here and say, if not Chris Peterson, who? Okay. Did you have Chris Peterson number three, by the way? I did. I would say it's either him or Lincoln Riley. Yeah, and we don't know how Um, this Oklahoma season is going for him. Or I'm going to throw out James Franklin. Well, you said that the other day. You said... No, here's the stat, and this this is a real stat. It's not like, hey, speculation or whatever. Since 2016, these are the coaches who have the best winning, who have won the most games, best winning percentage among Power 5 coaches. I'm going to give you them. Dabo Sweeney and Nick Saban, who are the obvious one-two. James Franklin is three. You know who number four is? Who's that? He's not on either one of our top 25 lists. But he would be this year, I think, if we redid it now. Ed Ogeron, number four. The, the problem with these best coaches lists is that it's hard not to get caught up in what's going on in the most recent season. And I'm looking at some of my names now. I have David Shaw, number 10. They're 4-4 four and four right now. I have um, Pat Fitzgerald, number 17. They are quite now, right now, fielding one of the worst teams in uh, recent Big Ten football memory. Saved only by Rutgers. In my head, by the way, in my head, I'm doing the calculation – does Stu get in like a kick to Mick McCall in this podcast? Too, I think, speaking of Mia culpas, I think you need to own up to just downplaying the, the Mick McCall issue earlier in the season. Uh, I mean, they are literally, Sports Source Analytics tweeted this while we were on the podcast. Northwestern is averaging 9.75 points per game, last in the FPS. FBS. No Power 5 team since 2001 has ever averaged under 10 points a game, the closest with Stanford in 2006. You're really going to say I'm giving the guy too much flack for producing the worst offense since at least 2001? Moving along. Moving along. <laughs> back, back to the uh, here's, here's the real Here's the real mystery. We haven't talked about this, really. We're both big fans of this guy. Dino Babers, number 19. They're terrible. I thought they would build off the momentum of last year and start getting this thing going. It's been quite the opposite. Me too. He, and he, by the way, lost in the Willie Taggart news. They fired their defensive coordinator on Sunday. I had Dino they at did. number 14. Um, 
So just in and then the, I had Jeff Brom at number twenty-two. That's becoming a little bit harder. You know who's another one who's had a really issue. disappointing year, by the way. Who was who I had at number nineteen? I believe you have somewhere on your list. Jeff Munkin at Army. I don't know what's going on there. I don't know what's going on there. They they uh, maybe Jay Bateman deserves a lot more credit for that defense game. since he's not yeah, there. Maybe. Anyway, back to the original point. Okay, if we are going to say, ah, you know what? Maybe I shouldn't have had Chris Peterson number three. Who are you going to put there instead? Lincoln Riley, James Franklin. Brian Kelly, Kirby Smart, no, Jimbo no, no, Fisher. No, no, no. These are just the names I had okay. right after him. Mike Leach, Gary Patterson, David Shaw. None of those, right? Well, I would say either Lincoln Riley or James Franklin. Okay. I would like to wait for the rest of the season to play out. That's a very easy thing to say right now when James Franklin is 8-0. And Lincoln Riley seven and one, and they're both very much alive for the playoff. Uh, let's see how the rest of the season plays out, and then we'll revisit it from there. But I gotta tell you, even if Washington ends up finishing six and six, Chris Peterson's still gonna be quite high on my list. Sorry to to say that to any uh, Washington fans who are not who are very frustrated with him right now. Agreed. Um, by the way, I would like to, you and I should tr- should should privately cha- uh, exchange lists and see. Who has the up arrow and down arrow? Because, man, I feel like this year there's a lot more uh, shuffling that would go on than in past years. I agree, but, again, it's dangerous to make those conclusions eight games in. I, I mean, Chip Kelly is an interesting one in that that's the thing I think I got the most mocked about was having Chip Kelly still in the top 25 after last season at UCLA. And then certainly when they were 1-5, they could end up uh, – I don't. they're not going to win the division – that they do play Utah with a chance to take control. They could, they technically. could technically. They could technically. But I think he's going to go from one and five to a bowl game. Yeah, and look, I mean, their best receiver right now is a walk on. Their starting running back is a walk on. I think that Dorian Thompson Robinson keeps getting better and better, and the offensive line is very young. I mean, I think they're trending up. Again, I I was obviously bullish on them, and. I don't feel as bad about that prediction as I probably did a month ago. You said there that at some point it was all going to click. It's starting and, to click. Uh, I don't think it's clicking to the it's degree to click. it will, but it's still it's starting to click. And I do think some of the doom and gloom about the recruiting stuff, I think some of that gets gets overblown when it goes to system stuff. Uh, that I'm still wondering how that will play out because that's a whole, we've talked about that before. That's a whole other subject. You're going to see a Utah team, that, Stu, that looks like a big, big physical team, and they don't do well recruiting-wise, according to their recruiting they analysts. They do better than, than UCLA did in Chip Kelly's first class, though. Josh from Salt Lake City. I keep hearing about the loser of the Alabama and LSU game potentially making the playoff. Obviously, everything else has to fall in place, but what could we be looking at if Penn State upsets Ohio State and Georgia wins the SEC championship game? Could we realistically see two Big Ten and two SEC teams in the playoff, even if Clemson is undefeated. I'm going to stop him right there and say undefeated Clemson goes to playoff 100%, not question. Uh, but if Clemson were to lose to, say, Wake Forest or lose in the ACC title game, see ya. They're, out. they're out. And then this seemingly unthinkable <laughs> scenario of only two conferences being represented, does that become a possibility? Man, that's a really high... I, I, I think it's doubtful. I really do. I mean, I don't know. Do you agree? I mean, I don't... I, I just think that's a hard sell for the committee to, to, to hand out. 
I agree with you. And uh, there's an interesting theory I heard from somebody over the weekend that, I mean, you remember last December, there was a very aggressive um, Jim Delaney, Bob Bowlesby, Barry Alvarez, many people, Nicole, our, our own Nicole Auerbach had these stories coming out very frustrated with what they see as the committee is not um, living up to the criteria that we told them to emphasize back when we started this thing. They're not giving conference championships enough value, and therefore, we're now open to an 18 playoff. And obviously, that made huge news. But I think a lot of us thought all along that, well, they know they're not going to get an 18 playoff tomorrow, but they could at least... Um, Put that out there enough, get enough public uh, sentiment to it that when the committee meets next year, that's in their heads. Like, yeah, maybe we are supposed to emphasize conference championships more. And I think that will be put to the test, possibly, with this idea of 11 and 1, or one loss, non, uh, one loss Big Ten or SEC team that didn't win its conference against somebody that did win its conference. Um, I think the only way this scenario he's describing happens is if everybody else has two losses. Agreed. Uh, do we have time? I don't think we have time. For well, just one. this one's not really a question. Brad Kelly just wanted to share us some stats uh, from since we were talking about Chase Young for the Heisman last week. Uh, so here's some stats for you. Chase Young leads the nation in sacks, three and a half more than his nearest competition. He's second in forced fumbles and tied for first in titles for a loss. Okay. He does it without the blitz. Only 11 Power 5 teams have blitzed less than Ohio State. And he does it without playing second halves. He's 290th in the country in total snaps by defensive linemen. What do you think about those? I think it's good, especially when you look. I mean, I had some of these uh, stats from Ohio State about what teams are doing to deal with him in terms of sliding pressure, uh, sliding their blitz, their uh, protection toward him, and rolling their quarterbacks away from him, double teams. You know, he's a, he is, to me, the most dominant player in college football. He's so much better than every other defensive lineman. The reality, though, is if LSU beats Alabama, Joe Burrow is going to get such a push off of that game. I think it's going to be very hard for anybody. And same way the other way around. If Tua comes out and he's, and he's himself and he puts up his tip, typical big game, uh, everybody's going to jump back on that bandwagon, too. That's why it is so hard for defensive linemen to even be considered in this thing because they don't put up those big um, flashy numbers every week. Uh, but but I do think if Ohio State keeps winning, he keeps performing well, he should at least be in the mix. All right, that's all the time we have. Can, uh, can I finish one but uh, just a little footnote yeah. on to something we just talked about about the recruiting? You know how many classes Utah has had ranked in the top 30 in like the last six years? Probably maybe one. Zero, and they've had some way above thirty. Yeah, and last, you know, right now they have a top ten team. The nucleus of that team is like barely finished in the top forty. There you go. There's the classic case of the overachievers. I think the reason it's a little more puzzling with UCLA is they do in the. I mean, Jim Mora had highly ranked classes. They didn't pan out, but being in LA, being in in Southern California, uh, with that school affiliation, you know. The, the prestige of that school, you can sign highly ranked classes. The, the, the question is, did he fail to sign a highly ranked class or is he choosing, as you have led us to believe, 
choosing to pass over some of the higher profile guys for guys that fit his system. And I think that's that's the challenge is what is the fit and how does it work? So again, I, I don't think there's absolutes in either of these, to be honest. I think we speak in absolutes too much, but so be it. Uh, all right. Well, we'll look forward to talking to you guys again on the Audible Extra later in the week. That's going to be a good one because we're going to be breaking down two games between eight and no teams. And that is available only on The Athletic. So if you're not a subscriber, I think you probably this is the week you need to plunk down the credit card. Well, we won't be back till Thursday. However, as soon as the playoff committee rankings come out Tuesday night, there's going to be a new episode of The Andy Staple Show available on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get podcasts. So be sure to check out Andy's podcast Tuesday night. We'll see you next time. If you enjoy the Audible, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review and a rating if you could, too. It helps us get the word out. Our producer is John Hayes. Our theme song is Dangerous by Kevin and the Octaves. You can download their music on Spotify or Apple Music. Follow me on Twitter at SLMandel. Follow Bruce at Bruce Feldman CFB. And if you're not yet a subscriber to The Athletic, what are you waiting for? You can get 40% off an annual subscription by using this link, theathletic.com slash theaudible. That's 40% off your subscription to The Athletic. We'll talk about it for years. Oh, yeah. oh, oh. Stock exchange.